Please be seated. Our scripture this morning is James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Thanks, Vicki, for reading it to us. Um, I'm struck by how timely this passage is. If there's ever been a time to ask the question, so what causes quarrels and fights? Now is the time for that. I, I'm ready for peace. <laughs> I am tired of the fighting. And I'm tired of the name calling. I'm tired of the trauma of a mob assaulting our capital. The trauma of black bodies being broken and murdered. I'm tired of the social injustices. I'm tired of the cancel culture. I'm tired of the identitarian politics. All the shouting and the protesting and the anger and the fear and the loss of trust. I'm, I'm tired of it. And, I'm, and I know that so many of us are. The families and friendships and communities and neighbors and churches are being ripped apart by the savagery of our politics. And so as we continue through the book of James, God, in his loving kindness, asks us this morning to take seriously the conflict going on in our society. And to not just try to turn the page and rush past it, but to ask the question, where's it coming from? What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? That's James chapter 4, verse 1. When you read the Bible, you should always say to yourself, self, God is saying this to me. God is asking you. He's looking you in the eye and asking you this question. And we should say, yes, thank you, God. I'm so glad you've gotten around to helping me with this. This is exactly what we need. We need our creator, who is our savior, to help us stop fighting. To show us a way out of the American carnage, the reactionary postures. We need an alternative to fear and rage, to suspicion and resentment. Our country is sick and weak, and angry, and divided, and violent, and we need to be delivered and restored. And so in our passage of scripture, our loving father this morning in real time is looking at us in the eye and mercifully offering us a path to peace. When we're stuck in a cycle of conflict, the path to peace begins by letting God ask us this diagnostic question. So really, where do you think all this is coming from? Notice James chapter 4, verse 1. Is it, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So at the end of the day, quarreling and fighting is a result of friendship with the world. And when that's the case, we have become enemies of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, 
what James is doing is he's pointing out that when you're a Christian, even though you go to church, even though you read your Bible, even though you say your prayers, at the end of the day, you live in this world. That's what it means to be a human. We live here. And being a human, going to work, going out to eat, having neighbors, all the things you do from watching TV to social media, going to school, as we live our lives, if we are not careful, we will just go with the drift and we will pick up habits of mind and body from our culture. It's pattern of life, the underlying implicit story, the things people want and expect and long for and dream of, the things that drive them to think and behave the way they do. And some of those habits, some of those expectations and longings and dreams, some of those behaviors and patterns of living, some of them are at odds with God and his desires for us. And that is the root of the conflict. Because in the world, the ultimate argument the thing to do when you don't have political power and you want it when you don't have something that somebody else has and you want it when you long for those things when you have become the victim and and you're you're bothered that you don't have this thing you really really want in the world the way to argue is with a fist or a boot or a gun a bomb violence it's about power and force That's what counts in the world, whether we're talking about physical violence or verbal violence, whether we're talking about the verbal violence of our former President Trump or we're talking about the violence of the cancel culture on the other end of the political spectrum, whether we're talking about mobs or polite society. People may smile and appear friendly and civilized. Your workplace environment may appear open and generous, but if you go against the flow, if you challenge cherished assumptions, there are ways of making you feel the displeasure. Violence and the threat of violence is the way the world ultimately works. And when we practice that mode of behavior, that manner of behaving, when we approve of it, when we overlook it, That's what James calls friendship with the world. He's talking about a particular friendship. He's talking about getting cozy with a violent way of treating one's opponents. And he says not only is that friendship with the world, but when you tolerate that kind of thing, notice in verse 5, God takes it personally. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? In the first pages of the Bible, one of the first things we learn about God is that God made us for relationships, not only with each other, but with him. And in our passage from Song of Song this morning, Song of Solomon, we see how God is passionately committed to you. And to me as individuals, and when we turn our backs on him and his values, then we are unfaithful to him, and he is jealous the way a jilted wife is jealous for her husband. But there's an alternative to this. There's an alternative to friendship with the world. And the alternative is friendship with God. I I just love verse 6, but he gives more grace Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Look, 
however cozy you've gotten with the world, on purpose or by accident, however far you've drifted from God, however unfaithful you've been to God, he offers you grace. God wants you back. However many times you've fallen and betrayed God, he will take you back. God catches us in bed with a lover and invites us back. Now, now how do we do that? How do we get out of bed with our lovers? And come back to God when we've drifted away. Well, the short answer is what it says in verse 6. God gives grace to whom? To the humble. The short answer is this. Humble ourselves before God. Not get up out of the bed and fighting and get mad at him. But to humble ourselves. And then in verses 7 through 9, he gives us four sets of actions that will lead us from our adultery back into friendship with God. The four actions that define what it means to humble yourself before God. First, to come home to God, to enter back into friendship with God, we have to submit ourselves to God. We have to yield to God. We have to recognize that his just and rightful rule belongs over our lives. Now, this should be a regular part of our life. We should find ourselves on a regular, on a regular basis saying, God, there's this thing I want. I want to do this. Or I want to think in this way. Or I want to participate in this thing. And my friends are doing it. And, and, and my family even says it's okay. But God, I know you don't. So we say to God, and Father, I disagree with you. I feel and think that this particular thing or this particular relationship or this way of using my money or my time or my body or acting, I think it's okay. But I am your child. I am your creature. You made me. You created me. You love me. You sustain me. You saved me. And so, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I submit my desire for acting this way or thinking this way or saying these things or whatever. I submit it to you. Do you see, our conflicts, they are a result of indulging our godless Desires. And the first step back to God is to submit our desires to God, give them over to God, even ask Him, God, I really want this thing. Please don't give it to me. This is so difficult. It's really hard to do this because our desires are rooted so deep within us, and we live in a culture that says, Find your deep desires, and that is the path to your true identity and to happiness. And this, this is so hard for us to do. It is hard to resist deep desires. That's why James, the very next thing he does is talk about the devil. The very next phrase is, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's interesting that he goes straight from submitting your desires to you got to deal with the devil. That's the second set of action. That's the second action behind what it means to humble ourselves before God, to resist the devil. To do this, we've got to, first of all, acknowledge that he exists. 
And that's hard for us. Our society, our culture, the songs we sing and listen to, the shows we love, the stories we tell, the conversations we have, our politics, our schools, it all slowly and deeply removes the devil from our way of thinking. Even those of us who believe in him, he just gets edged out to the side. But we must not forget the devil. That's what James does. When he starts talking about the struggle to submit your desires to God, he immediately says, now you got to take the devil seriously. God tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that the devil is our enemy. And he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In other words, it is a fatal mistake to ignore the devil and his ways. The devil is real. And, and his destructive intentions toward us are real. And removing him entirely from our way of thinking about what it means to make mistakes, it leaves us vulnerable and susceptible to his attacks. Sticking your head in the sand in the presence of a lion might dull the sound of his roar, but it will not help you escape him. We must be aware of the devil. We must know that more than anything else, there is a devil that longs for you to betray your loyalty to God. The devil longs for us to follow him in the path of disobedience. In the highest form, of resistance to the devil is to submit all that we are to our true king. Nothing will cause greater upset to the devil's schemes than our willing, joyful submission to God. And we can only resist the devil as we submit to God. This is what we've got to strive to do. And so here's the point. To resist the devil means we need to acknowledge his influence and that's hard. One of the big reasons it's hard is because of psychology. So much good has come from psychology, from counseling, from therapy. Psychology is one of the greatest gifts God gave the world over the last 130 years. The scientific study of behavior and mental processes has given us so much to consider about the way we approach our problems. It, it, it is a gift to the world, just like the vaccine for the coronavirus is. And yet, we are still trying to figure out how to receive the gift of psychology without sidelining the devil from our behaviors and our attitudes. And we are still very young in learning how to use this power in a, in a, in a good way. Here, here, here's the point. To resist the devil, we have to acknowledge his powerful influence and we have to determine we will not be taken by his lies and we will not indulge in our own pride. And, and as we resist him, James tells us something wonderful will happen. He will flee. Now, isn't that encouraging? Isn't it encouraging to know that the devil is a bully, but he's a bully who's a coward when he's resisted with the prayer that claims the victory of Jesus on the, on the cross, he knows he's beaten. But his trick is that he whispers to us, you can't resist me. You know you're going to give in. Why all the fuss? You've given in a thousand times before, so don't even put up a fight. But that's a lie. That is the lie. The lie is that he's 
irresistible. So basically, James is saying, stop fighting each other and fight the devil. And when we do this, notice verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. When we resist the devil by submitting our whole lives to God, submitting all of our desires to God and his will, when we do this, we are drawing near to God, and he will draw near to us. And that's verse 8. That's the third action we need in order to enter back into friendship with God. Look, if you've been giving yourself over to ungodly desires, if you've developed real friendship with parts of the world that are not pleasing to God, if you've drifted away from God, turned away from God, then what he's saying here is stop. Stop ignoring God. Turn back around. Draw near to him. God is ready and waiting. He longs to reestablish a friendship with you, a friendship that is deeper and stronger and more satisfying than we can ever imagine. And, and what could be more worthwhile than that? But notice, pay close attention to the end of verse 8. Repenting, turning to God, it's got to involve change. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Drawing near to God requires us to address our hands and our hearts, our actions and our attitudes, our behavior and our mindset. We've got to repent not only of what we do, but of our inner motives and attitudes. And that's the fourth action we need to come home to God. We've got to grieve over our sin. We've got to take it seriously. Notice verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Sin, sin is not some trivial thing that God can just sweep under the rug. It cost God his own blood, the blood of the Son of God, Jesus. And sin is not something that God will merely wink at and brush aside. The cross stands at the heart of our faith and it is a testament that sin deserves the wrath of God. A wrath that the Son was willing to bear on our behalf and a wrath whose awfulness was so awful that he cried out in God forsakenness on the cross. The more we understand this, the deeper we should have a sense of, our, of grief over our own sin. Sin should be something we mourn. Now, this has really challenged me this week because as I look over my life the last year, I have started to cry a lot. And overall, I think that's a good thing. But the fact is, over the past year, I have been more easily moved to tears by movies and TV shows and suffering than I have over my own sin. So these words of Jesus are a challenge to me. We are not just to regret our sin. We have to grieve over it. If we're not more emotional over our sin and our salvation than we are over our sports or politics or the plot twist in our favorite shows and movies, if we are not more emotional over our sin than we are over our children's achievements and failures, then something's wrong. And what's wrong is that we don't appreciate our sin for what it cost our Savior to, to rescue us from it. Sin is not cheap. 
Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on the cross, taking what you and I deserve for our sins. On the cross, he was forsaken and experienced the lostness of hell, but he did it all out of love for us. And because of his loving sacrifice, we can know the heaven of the Father's love through the work of the Spirit. And here's the catch. Here's how it all ties together. When we are fortified with the love of God in our hearts, we can discover the ability to love and serve our enemies and to stop the cycle. This is what 1 John 4 verse 19 says, we can love because he first loved us. Now verse 10 wraps up the whole paragraph. Humble yourself before God and he will exalt you. This is the beautiful paradox at the heart of the universe. It is only as we recognize our sin and grieve over it, it is only as we do that that God will lift us up. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and more flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. But at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dare hope. This is the relationship, this friendship, the friendship with God. This is the relationship that will transform us from angry, quarrelsome, contentious people. God's saving love in Christ strengthens us to, to, so that we can have the courage to see the truth about ourselves and repent. Remember, what we're talking about this morning is why are we fighting and the answer is not because somebody's a jerk. The answer is we're fighting because in our hearts there's a problem. The, the problem is us, not our opponents. And God's saving love in Christ strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and to repent. And this conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. And here's the beautiful irony. There should be no people more sad and yet more happy than Christians. The lower we are, the more we are lifted up. It is the great paradox of the Christian life that we weep over our sin while we sing our way into loving service of our enemies. Real happiness is on the far side of holiness, not on the near side. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It is so astonishing that God is ready and waiting. He longs to establish a friendship with you, a friendship deeper and stronger and more satisfying than we can ever imagine. And it takes time to do this, as any friendship worth its name will do. But what could be more worthwhile? Let's pray.